Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is a test of the emergency podcast system. It is a true emergency. Quick. Run. Love. Aliens. We're in. We're in. Welcome back to Mystery Team Inc., the podcast that's doing the final episode in a series of episodes about a goblin king. Thank God. Top of show business. I have some business. I know you do. I have a problem, is what it is. Okay. So you know how I feel about sports. Um, I think I should do my business first, which okay, is yeah. okay. listener discretion is advised. <laughs> because sometimes we say <laughs> bad words and talk about adult themes. <laughs> okay, now you can do yours. <laughs> so you know how I feel about sports. Correct, yes. And I hate... So today we had, at work, a whole group of people from one college, which shall remain nameless, who come in every Saturday for their game. And today they were especially aggressive because we had another group of people for another college who were just, like, trying to quietly enjoy their game. Right. But the other group was... This is at the restaurant Kayla works at. This is at the restaurant I work at. Full on red in the face, like, screaming to the point of, like, I was like, I would not go on a date with those people because I would feel unsafe. Right. And then they won, and one of them literally cried. (laughs) And I was like, I hate everything about organized sports and then one of my co-workers brought me an LA Kings jersey to wear and I looked so cute in it and I was like fuck now you have a problem now I have to be a sports fan because I didn't <laughs> realize I would look so cute in a jersey it's true I'm sorry that's it that's this is how I'm... most girls find out they like sports I'm furious <laughs> I looked so cute I'm sorry I'm, <sighs> I'm sorry for your loss it's truly a loss now I have to, like, learn how hockey works. <laughs> I can teach you, because hockey's actually kind of fun. Like, if you're going to watch a sport, hockey's kind of fun. They just like, And you can go to Kings games at the Staples Center. It's super cheap. I know. Just sit what, in the back and drink beer. It's that's great. That's what she was saying. She was like, now you can come with me because you like wearing the jersey. And I'm like, fuck. Now yeah. I have to find one that I think is cute and, the like, Kings get are... his jersey. Yeah. Damn it. Um, the nice thing, the Kings are the best team, too, because they have the best colors. Black. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think that might be why I look so cute in their jersey. Could be. Damn it. Fuck. Was that your business? That's my business. I just wanted you to know that I'm I'm gonna become a sports fan and I'm sorry. (laughs) Oh. Um, we're so off track. I forgot that this podcast is even about. (laughs) Um, did I, did we say I'm Maggie and I'm Kayla? (laughs) Are you both of us today? (laughs) No, I'm just trying to grasp at straws because I have no true north. What day is it? Um, what day? I'm Saturday. Maggie. <laughs> it's Saturday. I'm Maggie. <laughs> it's Saturday. 
That's Kayla. We have new shirts coming. Yeah. And that was all my business. Kayla has a corrections corner. And here's the thing, actually. I'm really glad that this worked out the way that it did. Kayla accidentally omitted one of my favorite parts of this story from the last episode. And I was like, what happened to that? And I'm actually really glad that happened because I feel like it's such a good note to start this episode on. And I'm really excited. I like that you think it was an accident. (laughs) Top, top, top. Should we crack that beer? Okay, so here's my oopsie-daisy. I covered in the last episode how he was arrested in Galveston after... Who? Jack the Ripper. We haven't even said his name yet. (laughs) He must not be named. So I covered how Robert Durst was arrested in Galveston after he went to go pick up his eyeglasses mm-hmm. after he left the body in the bay. After he murdered and dismembered someone. Yes. With a trail that led right back to his house. Like, just to his <laughs> apartment door. And also to an eyeglass clinic that he decided <laughs> to pay a visit to. So, his... his And we made a joke about how he had a $250,000 bail. Yeah. So he had $250,000 bail. They He posted it um, overnight... He got out on the 9th, and then he had an arraignment on the 12th. Robert Durst did not show up to He doesn't do <laughs> court. He doesn't do court. He just didn't show up. So the detectives in Galveston were like, who the fuck is this guy? To be fair, when they asked him if he, when they told him what his bail was and said, you got $250,000, he said, not on me. <laughs> so maybe he just didn't know how it worked. He was just like, oh, I thought, did I have to? He like, yeah. <laughs> he thought he paid them off. Yeah. He just thought he was like out of not in trouble anymore. Absolutely. So So they like did some digging and they found out that he was wanted in New York to talk to the police about Kathy's disappearance and he was wanted in LA to talk about Susan's murder. So then they dig digged a little more. <laughs> I'm so tired. They dug a little more, and they learned that he had used aliases before he was Dorothy Siner, but also that Dorothy Siner was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. <laughs> Dorothy as Dorothy? Dorothy Siner, the name. Oh, of course. Um, she was a person that he went to school in Scarsdale. Scarsdale. Sure. High school. I didn't know that. Yeah. So she was his high school classmate and he just like took the name and got sure. her on the FBS 10 Most Wanted. Um, they also found a bank account that he set up under the name Emilia Vigioni. <laughs> um, it sounds like Emilia Vidalia. <laughs> um, a car that he rented in Mobile, Alabama under the name Morris Black. Um, he went to a spa in Galveston under the name Diane Wynn. <laughs> Um, he checked into a Holiday Inn under the name Jim Terse. Sure. Spelled T-U-R-S-S. Um, and he checked into a Residence Inn under the name Maury Block. Can't imagine where he came up with that one. It's nothing like Morris Black at all. <laughs> I didn't even put that together. <laughs> he just, like, changed the vowels. Oh my god. He's such a ding-dong. So, then... On November 30th, 2001, Robert Durst was arrested out of Wegmans in Hanover, Pennsylvania, for trying to shoplift a $6 chicken salad sandwich. 
Oh, it was chicken salad. It was chicken salad, which makes it I thought it was worse. just chicken. It it's is worse. chicken salad. It's worse. He says... And some Band-Aids or something, right? No, he bought other stuff. He oh. just... It was... <laughs> listen. He says, I went to Wagland's <laughs> to do grocery shopping, get the newspaper. I don't know what gave me the idea that I should shoplift. <laughs> To see if I could get away with it or whatever it was, but I decided rather than to pay, I was just going to take it. As I was leaving, the two security people were out front and they have to talk to me. We're sorry, you'll have to come with us, blah, blah, blah. Idiotically, I went with them. Uh, that was I was arrested. <laughs> the idiotic part was going with the security people, not shoplifting a $6 sandwich when you're on the run after you jumped bail because you're wanted for fucking murder in three fugitive. different states. Literally a federal fugitive in three different states. Um, and he was at this time completely bald. Like he shaved his head and, and his, his eyebrows. eyebrows. And you can actually watch the security footage. It's They put it in the Jinx, I think, delicious. and you can watch it online. He's just like hobbles around. Yeah. Can we just, can I just give a shout out though to that fucking minimum wage employee that was like <laughs> the one that was to the security guards were like, I think that bald old man just stole a sandwich. Will <laughs> yeah. you go check it can out? You go check. Whoever that was. Because I would have been like, yeah, fucking let him go. International fugitive on the run caught by Wegman's teen employee most likely <laughs> incredible um so then after they arrested him police searched his rental car and they found two loaded guns <laughs> weed um $38,000 in cash and Morris Black's ID and he had $520 in cash on him I forgot that he had Morris Black's ID on him yeah in the car yeah and $38,000. $38,000 in cash. And $520, like, in his pocket that yeah. he could have used to buy 500 chicken salad sandwiches. Yeah. God, that's so incredible. I know. I mean, it just speaks to the, we've talked about it before, the level of narcissism. Mm-hmm. And sort of, like, untouchableness. Yeah, where he just thinks he can walk through the world and, like, steal a chicken. Also, please pick a different sandwich. <laughs> I agree. I got really hung up when I was looking into this part on the fact that it was chicken salad. Chicken salad is one of the most disgusting foods on the planet. I know. It is the third worst sandwich salad. I'm so curious to hear what the first two worst sandwich salads are. I mean, all sandwich salads are bad, but as someone who eats the other two... Do you mean salad sandwich? No, sandwich salad. Like salads that go on sandwiches? Yes. Okay, go on. Tuna's the best. Yeah. No. Yes. No. Oh. <laughs> I remember when you egg. Remember when you ate a pound of potato salad and you like swore off it for the rest of your I life. I haven't had it since. <laughs> Kayla and I were going to like the beach or something. No, we were at your house. Oh, we were drunk and we walked to the grocery store. No, yes, we walked to Ralph's on cold water. This is not what I'm talking about. This was like a year ago that I'm talking about. This, we were at your house in cold water. Are you sure? Yes, I because I remember. Sitting on that couch, possibly watching <laughs> oh, yeah. either, we were either watching Rick and Morty or Christmas movies, and we were drinking wine, Kayla and was cra- Kayla was craving. She was like, I just really want potato salad, and we, they didn't have any, like, in the deli, but they did have, like, a pound container of it that was, like, pre-packaged by uh, some company, 
And she was like, this is a lot, but I guess I'm just going to buy it and then eat it. And when she started eating it, she was like, this isn't good. <laughs> I was like, well, I can't help you. And then like halfway through the like, I don't know the I pint got of it, through. she was like, this is really bad. And now I ate half of it. It wasn't even good potato salad. And there was so much of it. There was so much of it. And I... You we, just powered through it like you didn't want I really to. wanted it. <laughs> we just rolled out some new menu items, including potato salad, and we had like one of those meetings where you try all the food. Oh no! And they brought out the potato salad, and I was like, "Nope, not doing that." I haven't tasted it still. Wait, I have to blow my So nose. wait, what are the two worst salad sandwiches? There's only three. Oh, tuna, egg, and chicken. Oh. First things first. I was doing some research on Dick DeGaron. Yes. Did you know that he represented David Koresh? No. Yeah. <laughs> the amount that that surprises me, though, is negative. I was like, I went to his Wikipedia page and it was like, Dick DeGaron represented, like, in, a, in his Waco, Texas trial, David Koresh. And I was like, oh, boy. Jeez, that's bold. I know. Um, <clears throat> so this episode of the podcast covers the events that unfolded during the making of the HBO docuseries, The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. So back in the early 80s, after the disappearance of Kathleen, Robert Durst's father hired a lawyer to represent Robert. Okay. That lawyer was named Nick Scapetto. Mm -hmm. Scapetta. I wrote Scapetto here, but it's Scapetta. Yeah. I like that you changed it in the document after you (laughs) said it already. For myself. It would bother me. What's interesting about that is that Nick Scapetta is a criminal defense lawyer and a former DA. If you're... They make this point in the drinks. If you're actually innocent in the disappearance of your wife because it's a missing persons case, you don't hire a criminal defense lawyer. Yeah. But... In general. Just a a point to put forward. He's not. Right. (laughs) Right. He's definitely not. Right, right. For sure, for sure, for sure. Bob says that Nick Scapetta's job was actually to, quote unquote, find Kathy Durst. Sure, hire a criminal defense lawyer to find a missing missing wife. Yeah. He says, if you could find Kathy, there would be no accusations. And Andrew Jarecki asks Robert if he thought that his father may have believed that he had anything to do with the disappearance of Kathy, and if that may have been why he hired him a criminal defense lawyer. And Bob says, I haven't the slightest, faintest idea. But Seymour's thoughts were inscrutable. (laughs) Nick Scapetta hired a former... You know what happened? I think it auto-corrected, because it's everywhere it says Scapetto. What is Scapetto? I don't know, maybe like a more common last name? Google it. No. Nick (laughs) Scapetta... We don't have time for this. There's ten pages of this. I just like to learn. Maybe it's a type of pasta. I mean, it's definitely a surname. Okay, fine. Nick Scapetta hired a former chief investigator of the, the New York Organized Crime Task Force named Ed Wright to do some private investigating in the matter of Kathy's disappearance. Ed was able to get information from the police to help with Robert's case because he was formerly the head of the task force. And he also did several interviews with Robert. When the filmmakers of the Jinx got in contact with Ed, he essentially said, 
I was working for Nick Scapetta, so anything that was said to me by Robert in those interviews is privileged information because I was, you know, it's attorney-client privilege. Like, I was working under his attorney. Is that how that works? Couldn't tell you. But that's what he said. Is that like doctor-patient? Like, if, like, my therapist receptionist... (laughs) If I was like, bitch, you will never believe what happened this week. And she's like, what? I'm I'm not sure about this, but I think that anyone were like paralegals are included. Like I think anyone working below your, if, if you're gathering information in an interview for an attorney, I think that counts as attorney client privilege. Okay. I'm not positive, but does that extend to PIs? I don't know. God, we should go to law school. We really should. So despite that, the filmmakers were able to obtain a copy of Ed's confidential reports from 1982. <laughs> so whether such a good fuck you, whether that it's true or not, doesn't matter. Cause we got his reports. <laughs> The report was titled, quote, Discrepancies in the Recollections of Various Principles. Dear God. It was basically, from Ed's perspective, all of the inconsistencies in Robert's story from the night Kathy disappeared. For example, (sighs) Exhibit A, the telephone call to Kathy. In a February 13th interview with Ed Wright, Robert claimed that he called Kathy from their house in South Salem while watching the 11 o'clock news on TV. Mm-hmm. On February 28th, in an interview with Ed, he claimed that he called Kathy from a public phone in a restaurant, which mm. is a story I've never even heard. Yeah. And then March 2nd, as you reported in our previous episode, he told, Detective, he told <laughs> Detective Michael Strzok and the NY police that he called NY, the New York police. <laughs> <laughs> the, I was going to say the NYPD. The New York police that he called Kathy from a payphone. Remember, while walking the dog after dropping her off the train station. But that's the official report. But in two interviews with Ed Wright before he talked to Michael Strzok, he gave different variations of the story. Second of all, during the... not even trying. I know. During the police investigation, Michael Strzok says that the doorman of the Riverside apartment building told them that he'd seen Kathleen come home that night. Remember, that's the official story. That's Mm. what was in the news. In Ed's interview with the doorman... The doorman told Ed that he'd never seen her that night and that he would have been the person to bring her up. So if he didn't see her, then she wasn't there. Yeah. Ed Wright was, as he describes it, mutually terminated from working with Robert's team. A conscious uncoupling. I see. Yeah, literally. I assume after he told them that there was no way that Robert was telling the truth. Robert claims that he probably had a dozen meetings with Ed. He said several of them were in Nick Scapetta's office. And several of which his brother, Doug Durst, was present for. Oh, Douglas. Also, it's now occurring to me that maybe you can say that they're attorney-client privilege because Nick Scapetta was in the room. Oh, yeah. Side note. Um, in the documentary, I'm going to talk about Robert Durst, or sorry, Douglas Durst in a minute. Um, but in this part of the documentary, they dedicate this whole section to interviews with Kathy's family. And it's heartbreaking um they interview kathy's niece her name is elizabeth mccormick kathy disappeared two weeks after she was born and she looks exactly like kathy um and she says like i never knew that much about her disappearance until i like got a little older and everyone was like holy shit you look exactly like her they show elizabeth pictures of kathy that i don't think she's necessarily seen and she goes oh my god like that could be me She's like, it's crazy. Um, 
And so I wanted to like make a note or, you know, one of my soapbox moments. Like it's really easy to get caught up in the mystery and like the personality. It's not really a mystery anymore, but it's easy to get caught up in like the facts and the details and lies and the personality of Robert um, because the story is like so bonkers. But Mm -hmm. I just want to like take a moment to remember that Kathy and Susan and Morris were real people and they had real families. Yeah. And it's important to like take time to consider them because once again, I just don't want it to like, this is a story about Robert Durst, but like it really should be a story about his victims, Mm -hmm. but it's a story about Robert Durst. So I just want to like make a little space to sort of have a moment for people that were affected by his murders. Um, but once again, that whole that whole thing is like just a testament to how incredible the filmmaking is in yeah. the Jinx. I highly recommend watching it now that you're gonna be finished with our series about Robert Durs. So at this point, the film spends a lot of time establishing that Douglas won't talk to them. <laughs> um, how much time? <laughs> a lot. We don't need to like actually go into it, but they like call him and he they keep getting called back by like people who are like, yes, you called Douglas? And they're like, right, I called Douglas. And he's like, right, what can I do for you? And he's like, like, we're making a film about him. We thought he'd want to, we might want to talk to us, so we portray him accurately. And he's like, nope, he does not want to talk to you. Have a nice day. And then they go to a gala where Douglas is being honored for his charitable contributions. And Jarecki, do you remember this? Jarecki, like, tries to talk to him, and Mm -hmm. Douglas is, like, really friendly to him. And then he's like, I'm making the film. And Douglas is like, oh... And he's like, I don't mean any harm. And Douglas is like, well, you're causing a lot of harm. But he's actually never, like, rude to them. He's yeah. just like, I don't want to talk to you. Which is fair. He's amiable, and I understand why. Um, and then Jarecki makes this really important comment, like, or a really interesting comment. He's like, it must be interesting for Douglas to live in a world where Robert doesn't exist. Because Doug has replaced Robert as the eldest son. Yeah. If you don't know anything about their backstory, Douglas, like, now runs the family business, and Robert, obviously, is an outcast. And so it's it's interesting because Douglas, like, really does live in a world where Robert doesn't exist, and he has the security to, like, allow him to do that. Literal security detail. That's what I mean. Like, he literally has, like, the security personnel to prevent Robert from, like, ever being a part of his life. Um, it's exactly what I would do. And I'm going to get into why in just a moment. Yeah. uh, Robert's nephew makes the observation that Doug and Robert's sibling rivalry was a sibling rivalry of epic proportions as they competed for who would take over the billion dollar business. Robert being passed over for the role is what one interviewee from the Jinx describes as a betrayal of biblical proportions. Well, let's relax a little bit. It. Here's the thing, though. He did not wrong. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do it, but he still... The thing is that, like, he tried to be involved up to a certain point. And then they started... Remember his parents pitted him against Douglas, or his dad pitted him against Douglas from Mm -hmm. the beginning? He just, like, wasn't any good at it. And so he, like, started to fall away from... The position before he. I just feel like maybe he didn't give a fuck about it though. But after Kathy disappeared, he worked in that office 
I don't know. I don't know. But it is, I mean, it is interesting because he is the oldest son and like there was this expectation that he would take over the business. Yeah, I feel that I, my interpretation of it is that they like, they paint this picture, especially in the jinx of like this poor, he was passed over for this huge job and everyone's like, he's bitter because Douglas got this job and like he was ousted from the family and blah, blah, blah. But like he says like, I just wanted to run a health food store with my wife in Vermont. Right, but after Kathy disappeared. He didn't have a, like, he didn't really, like, what else was he going to go do? I <clears throat> I don't think that he really had an interest in, like, running the company, I but I think it's the principle that his family, like, he was, like, quote, unquote, like, he was the eldest son, and so he was supposed to be something, right? Like, he was supposed mm-hmm. to fulfill this role as the oldest son, and his family, like, didn't like him from the beginning. Like, they all, yeah. like, he was just... You know, like he was an—he was the heir to this billion-dollar company. I just like the family dynamic. It is like it is a huge betrayal. I don't know. I just kind of feel like maybe it doesn't count as a betrayal if it's not something he wanted in the first place, unless he did want it and then he decided. I don't know. I get the sense that what he wanted was their approval. And he would have done it for their approval. Yeah. But when they stopped including him, he just decided he didn't want him to have anything to do with it. Almost like in a reactionary way. Mm. Like, I get the impression that he wanted to be somebody, like, he wanted to be a part of the family, but when he wasn't good at it or capable and they didn't really want him to be, he kind of turned on them and said, like, I don't want to do this. Because what you're describing is what I did. I think I'm just looking at it through the lens where I'm like, well, he didn't want it anyway. Right. No, I mean, it's super interesting because I've encountered that in my life too. And it's like, I've run into times where I didn't want things only because I felt rejected by them. Like, and I think that that may be kind of what was at play for Robert. Like, I think that he, when he couldn't fill the role and he didn't get the love and the attention that he wanted from them, he decided he didn't need them or want to have anything to do with them. Mm. God, I never thought I would end up sympathizing with him. Or not sympathizing, but... I don't feel bad for him because... I don't feel bad for him. Not inheriting... Identifying is what I meant. Right. My brain can't think of words today. Yeah. I never thought I would identify with Robert Durst either. Um, Except for I, too, am a goblin. Yeah. Of a different sort. Sure. Then we learned something that I had completely forgotten about. And, like... Thank God that we did four separate episodes because this is almost a fourth murder. I have no... So, this really, like... This is interesting because this seems like a bigger deal to me than they make it in the docuseries, but they play a tape of Robert talking to his then-wife, Deborah Lee Cheriton. Aren't they still married? I believe they're separated now. Uh, Not positive. I don't know. I'll have to fact check that. They play a tape of Robert talking to his then wife, Deborah Lee Cheriton. And Bob says, did I tell you that I went to his Katona house? And I was driving around these places that I grew up, my family places. And Deborah says, it was in the newspaper then. And Bob says, yeah, but I really went. My plan was. And she's like, don't say it. And he's like, definitely not going to say it. And she says, don't say it. Okay, but you told me what your plans were. And I told you that I knew and I had a feeling. I suspected, remember, that if I suspected, he knew too. That's what the tape says. Douglas's house? 
While Robert was on the run before he got caught for stealing that chicken salad sandwich, he pulled into the driveway of Doug's Katona home. What's with K- where's Katona? Uh, I believe it's like upstate New York. Yeah, New York. Okay. Um, it's where they grew up. It's like the suburb they grew up in. It's in Westchester. Okay. He pulled into the driveway of Doug's k- house in Katona with two guns in his car. <laughs> and after that happened, that's when Douglas hired himself a bodyguard. And then the tabloids ran a story about how Robert was bitter that Douglas, you know, like took over his role as the eldest son and how the family had completely like discredit, um, like outcast Robert. And the tabloids ran a story about that and claimed that he was out to kill Rob or uh, kill Douglas. Yeah, that's not far fetched. So <laughs> at this point in the filming of the jinx, Bob makes the filmmakers photograph him outside of Douglas's house. Oh my god, he's so fucking weird. I never noticed this before. Doug's New York house is adjacent to a funeral home? No, it isn't. Did you ever notice that no. before? <laughs> it's so creepy. Of he lives in a brownstone. It fucking is. And it's like shares a wall with a funeral home. Oh my god. I just thought you should know that. It's very Bob's burgers. <laughs> yes, correct. So at this point in the documentary, the producers get a call from Sareb. Which everyone, by the way, everyone, oh, damn it. Okay, everyone in the documentary calls him Sereb. And I just learned this t- past time around that it's Sereb. Oh, really? Yeah. When he, <clears throat> they refer to him as Sereb the entire movie. And he refers to himself one time and he pronounces it Sereb. Oh, good. So, so everyone was really listening. Apologies. I've been saying it wrong this whole time. So <clears throat> Sereb calls and he says he's been going through Susan's possessions. And that he has something that he wants the producers to see. What Sarah actually says is, started going through the boxes of Susan's stuff, and I did have another box. So, um, wanted to actually get a reality check from you when you have a second. All right, bye. He presents the filmmakers with a letter. The letter is return address to Robert Durst, floor 24, 67 Wall Street, New York, New York. The letter is addressed to Susan Berman, 1527 Benedict Canyon, Beverly Hills, California, 90210. The address is written in all capitals, and Beverly is misspelled. Mm-hmm. It's written in the same handwriting as, and even misspelled exactly as it is on the envelope of the cadaver note that was addressed to the Beverly Hills police after Susan's murder. Yeah, it's B-E-V-E-R-L-E-Y, right? Correct. So now I'm going to play the recording of the producers calling each other after Sarah has revealed oh my God. this letter to them. He showed me a letter from Bob to Susan that was from March before she was murdered. The address written on the front is exactly like the cadaver note down to the misspelling of Beverly. It gives me chills every time. It's so ooky. I really can't. It freaks me out. So, Sarah shows them the letter. And at this point, he's in tears. And we don't know what the conversation with the filmmakers is up until this point, but he says, this is why it was clear enough that I might be dancing with the devil. Because Sarah, remember, is he still friends with super Robert. adamant that... 
he, he didn't do anything. Didn't believe that Robert did anything, and he was hanging out with him even while they were filming the Jinx. Oh, even while they were filming? Mm-hmm. Ugh. They have footage of him in the Jinx of them hanging. So they share a cigarette. Icky. Because Robert put himself in this position to like be Sarab's like surrogate father. Do you think that's when my friend saw him in Silver Lake? Probably. Although that was they filmed it before the Jinx came out. No, I. Oh, you're right. Damn. Cut that out. <laughs> so another day, they show Sarah a photocopy of the envelope from the cadaver note, and they ask him, "Do you think you have an answer now?" And he just shakes his head and says, "I do." At this point, the filmmakers know that they have a piece of irrefutable evidence. So. They try to determine if the poli- if there's a possibility that maybe the police already had this letter in their file. And when Jaraki gets in touch with the other producers to ask them um, after they call the LAPD to follow up, they say there is no chance. So they take the letter to the bank and they put it in a safety deposit box. And Jaraki says, nothing's bringing Susan back and nobody's going to know that we have this document. So what about we interview Bob? We bring it up. Mm-hmm. We have it on film. And then we have something that the LAPD is going to really want because without all the bullshit, without having to go through 800 different levels of discovery and all that, we've got Bob reacting clean to this hugely important piece of evidence. And this is where the filmmakers legitimately like become heroes because they now embark on this journey to I just got chills. plan out this very delicate trap. Mm-hmm. This interview where they're going to confront Bob with the letter. And it's, that's, it's so smart. Mm-hmm. It's so smart to not take it to the police immediately. Because it would have just gotten lost. It would have, they, it would have been part of the discovery for all the bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like you have to, yeah. It has to go through like 800 levels, like they said, of discovery. And then like pass through all these bureaucratic channels. And then his lawyers would have known about it. Yep. And given him a story mm-hmm. before it got to him. The story would have been, Morris had the gun. Yeah, exactly. Morris had the pen. Right. Morris. Um, so we will hear about that interview and the stunning conclusion to our four-part series <gasps> on Robert Allen Shovel King Durst <laughs> after the break. Shovel King. <laughs> left our heroes <laughs> they were plotting record scratch bet you're wondering how we got here <laughs> so it's time uh it's almost time for the interview but first a uh, quick note damn it the filmmakers show photocopies of the cadaver note envelope side by side with the letter that bob wrote to susan the uh, envelope for the letter that bob wrote to susan they show those photographs to like a few different people in their interviews, but my favorite is Janine Pirro. They show them to Janine Pirro and she goes, yeah, Wall Street, because that's his return address. And they go, no, like, look at the, and she goes, she's such a New Yorker. She goes, oh my God, Beverly. The B is exactly the same. And then you see her like, see the misspelling and she goes, son of a bitch. 
<laughs> it's so good. Say what you will about Janine Pirro, but that it's bitch so can structure a scene on her own. Like, it's nothing. She really can. It's unbelievable. So, if you'll recall, the filmmakers already addressed the cadaver note in their first interview with Bob. Yeah. In which he famously says, and I say famously because I referenced it before, (laughs) in which he famously says, it's a note that only the killer could have written. (laughs) Because Bob does never, just never stops incriminating himself. Absolutely. Setting himself up to fall so hard. Um... Yet, though. <laughs> like, right. Fall where? Sideways? Like. <laughs> he also talks about how the police were very hung up on the use of the word cadaver. Mm-hmm. The note had Susan's address and then just the word cadaver. That was the note. The police said no one uses that word. The killer must have had some medical experience or worked as like an EMT or like in an ambulance or something like that. Um, Someone who would know that word and use it to refer to a body. Mm -hmm. Bob had no medical experience, but Kathy did. Kathy's friend, Eleanor Schwank says, I love Eleanor Schwank. I think that word is so telling. Kathy had a cadaver in medical school. She didn't give it a name. You know, she had respect for the fact that it was a living human being at one time. And so she talked to me about the cadaver and she talked to Bob about the cadaver. Bob heard that word over and over and over again in relation to the dead body. If you ask anybody how they would describe a dead body, nobody says cadaver. Mm-mm. At this point, the crew of the, the Jinx presents the letters to a forensic document examiner who says, essentially, he's going to need several more examples of known handwriting from Bob that we know is his. And the film crew pulls 40 documents and presents them to the forensic document examiner. He calls the characteristics of these known letter forms bang on. These particular characteristics are unique to one person and only one person. So Jarecki calls Bob to schedule a final interview, But Bob says he's going to Madrid next week, and he'd rather go to Madrid and do the interview when he gets back. Great. They have a shot of the producers discussing Bob being in Madrid, and one of them says, well, we don't know that he's in Madrid. And Jarecki says, I mean, I find him to be genuinely truthful about, and another producer cuts him off and says, I doubt that he's lying about, and then the camera off goes, are you guys fucking kidding me? (laughs) It's so funny because when you watch it the first time, you don't catch it. But knowing what we know, it's like Jarecki really does. And he talked directly to actually I get into this. Jarecki talks about it later, but he convinced himself that Bob was someone else. And he has like affection toward him. Yeah, yeah. I'll talk. I talk about it. But because of that, they're like, I mean, why would he lie about going to Madrid? I don't know if he's going to be in Madrid. And like the camera op is like, are you guys fucking kidding me? Uh, So, oh, of course. Sarah then calls the producers and tells them that Bob asked him not to tell the producers that he's in L.A. <laughs> because, quote, he told them I was in Barcelona. Or, oh, sorry. Yeah, he says, I told them I was in Barcelona. Oh, my God. And Jarecki's on the phone with the, like, with the producer who just talked to Sarah. And he goes, it's funny because he told me he was in Madrid. <laughs> um, you know that cam off is that crafty like a fucking Yeah, right. <laughs> but do you like that Bob even mixed it up? 
He can't. He was like, I told them I was in Barcelona. He doesn't even, tr- like, try to get, and this is something we say all the time, but he just, like, he doesn't even try Mm-mm. to try. Mm-mm. Bob then rescheduled the interview. Right. <laughs> Again. Weeks go by. Where was he? Mallorca? Probably. Weeks go by, and the producers are calling him, and Bob tells them, he, Bob finally picks up and he tells them, I sort of think you need a new gig. <laughs> You've done Robert Durst. I'm at the point of not doing anything. Period. And hangs up on them. So now it's like they've carefully concocted this plan to do a second interview. And they've said to Bob, like, we just want to follow up on a couple of things. You know, me, 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 type some loose ends. And Bob's like, okay. And then he's like, actually, I'm in Madrid. Actually, I'm not going to do it at all. And they're sitting here with this fucking piece of evidence that's like, could blow the top off the whole thing, right? And they're like... A few weeks later, the producers have a conference call and they show in the jinx a shot of the production office and the associate producer, Colin Wilm, is on this conference call and he, they're all just like, yeah, okay, does anyone know where he is right now? And he just holds up, he like scribbles something on a yellow legal pad. He holds it up to the camera and it just says, Bob has been arrested. <gasps> so... Is he single? What happened was... God, I really gotta get my production goggles off my head. <laughs> so what happened was Doug had filed an order of protection on Bob after the day that they shot in Times Square and they went mm-hmm. to, his to his house. Bob's Burger's house. Well, another day, their security camera caught video surveillance, this is a different day, of Bob approaching Doug's house. It's a couple weeks after they filmed in Times Square. And he, like, walks up the stairs to the door, and he, like, looks around, and then he leaves. So he obviously violated the order of protection, and they arrested him. (laughs) Oh, my God. Then Bob gets out on $5,000 bail. Five? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, it's, like, 75 cents. Right. Because all he did was violate the order of protection. It's not like he murdered multiple people. It's not like he murdered three people. So then... After that happens, and after Douglas, like, stirs up whatever that weird fucking thing is in Bob that makes him feel like he's not part of the family, Bob calls the producers. He says that his lawyers want to discuss with the filmmakers what they remember from the day that they filmed in Times Square of him approaching Douglas's property. Because they went to Douglas's um, work, and they also went to his house. Yeah. So And they couldn't get into the building, right? Right. The security guard's like, no, get out of here. His lawyers basically tell him that they're basically saying, like, if you want to have a good defense, you're going to need the producers to back you up mm-hmm. and explain why you were there and what was going on, maybe hand over the footage. So Jarecki calls the lawyers and he agrees to give them the footage that, he, that they shot because he knows that he's winning leverage with Bob. God, he's so fucking smart. If he helps him with his case that Bob is more inclined to do the interview. Then he calls Bob and Bob says, I am ready to be filmed if you're still interested in doing that. As the producers meticulously plan their final interview, Jarecki says, the more that I look at this, the more I realize a how hard it's going to be and how cold it's going to feel to him. And I wanted to bring this up. Because throughout this documentary, the first time that you watch it, there is, like, up to a point, a certain benefit of the doubt that you're willing to give Robert. And the film purposefully frames it that way. 
And then even after that benefit of the doubt is gone, there's still this weird evolutionary part of your brain that does feel bad for him. Yeah. And it's what we talked about. It's a little rich boy thing. Right. And it's what we talked about in the first episode. Um, like you just said, like about how you can feel bad for that child, but not Mm -hmm. like approve of him as an adult. Right. And like you look at the, what they've painted this picture of like this fallen eldest son and your brain wants to feel bad for him. Of New York real estate. (laughs) For real. Um, and also, I think a lot of that is very patriarchal because if a female archetype did that, like it wouldn't even have been framed that way. The note that the I thing. wrote was nobody feels bad for Medea. <laughs> like, you know I what do. I, mean? I love Medea. Oh god. Well, you and I are different because we're like virulent feminists, but yeah. like it's very it's a very patriarchal thing, like yeah. the importance of the eldest son and all that bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, and. I also wanted to tell this story because it's something that I ran into in my brief foray into documentary filmmaking. Uh, if you'll remember, like I made this documentary, like a short film for USC because I was doing a documentary program there over the summer and it was about someone that we know. Oh, and I remember, I recall. In order to make a compelling film, it requires exposing the subject as they really are and not as they see themselves. Yeah. So it's a really difficult line to tread because the subject has allowed you as a filmmaker into their life. You have to gain their trust in the first place and then you have to betray it to make a good film. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, they and they never come out of it unbetrayed. Like, they never come out of it unscathed. Yeah. Because if there weren't something to betray, then, like, there wouldn't be a film. Yeah. I mean, like, you can't get an interview with David Miscavige because you can't befriend David Miscavige, right? Like... You shouldn't be able to get an interview with Robert Durst, but Andrew Jarecki befriended him. And because they really did become friends, he was able to get him into this interview Mm -hmm. is the, I guess the point that I was making. Yeah. And you know that what you're doing is right because it's the moral decision is to like put this corrupt person away for the rest of their life. But it does require a sort of third stage of morality to execute this betrayal in person for the greater good. Mm-hmm. And it also requires an immense amount of courage to become the enemy of someone that that powerful right to his face. So, having said that, let's discuss the final interview. Mm. Jarecki shows Bob some pictures, and he throws him some softball questions, and he actually shows him the picture of Bob and Susan that we posted in our Instagram post. Mm-hmm. And Bob says, yes, I'd like to get a copy of this. And... He, like, actually looks at it, like, wistfully. And it's really bizarre. He's like, yeah, I'd, I'd, like, I'd, I want a copy of that. And, like, it's hard to watch because you know he's, even though he's going to get the copy, it's like. So Jarecki says, I want to ask you about this address. He gives Bob the letter that he wrote to Susan. And Bob reads the letter. He says, Susie, now and again I think about old times. GG. Good luck, Bobby. What about the address? And Jaraki asks him about the letterhead, the office he was working in at the time. And then he asks him if he remembers what the letter was about. And Bob says he doesn't remember. Maybe she had published something around that time. And Jaraki says, my theory is that you were sending her some kind of support. And Bob says, that's very possible. I can easily see writing that letter and putting a check in there. Then Jaraki says, I want to show you that envelope that the letter came in. Would you read me the address on that envelope? 
he reads it. And he says, Susan Berman, 1527 Benedict Canyon, Beverly Hills, Beverly spelled wrong, 90210. Which is, you know, the zip code you want in Beverly Hills, but you don't, you just didn't want Susie's neighborhood. And Jackie says, so obviously I want to ask you about the cadaver note, the famous cadaver note. Can you read me the spelling of Beverly and Bob overlaps in Beverly Hills Police, 1527 Benedict Canyon cadaver. Same misspelling. Jackie says, what does that say to you? Bob says, I mean, the writing is similar. The spelling is the same. So I can see the conclusion the cops would draw or the writing exemplar person. And at this point is when he starts burping. He says, would conclude they're both written by the same person. Jarecki then shows him the side-by-side comparison. He says, did you write the cadaver note? And Bob says, no, I didn't write the cadaver note. Jarecki says, so you wrote this, but you didn't write this. Definitely wrote this, but I did not write that. I guess I'm searching for a way to understand how... Two people could misspell Beverly. I'm searching for a way to figure out how you didn't write the cadaver note because it's so similar. Bob says, well, what I see is the similarity is really the misspelling in Beverly. Other than that, block letters are block letters. How else would you write a block letter than that? I mean, it's almost like a typed thing. It's going to look like two typewriters. It's going to look the same. And Jarecki says, so you wrote one of these, but you didn't write the other one. I wrote one, but I did not write the cadaver one. Drecky then holds up the isolated comparison, where it's just cropped photocopy of Beverly Hills from the cadaver note and Beverly Hills from Bob's letter. He says, and can you tell me which one you didn't write? And Bob says, no. And that's like the end of the interview. He does this really crazy thing where he just... And we said this before, obviously, where he just says, he, like, gets ahead of you. And he's like, well, I can see how you would think that every that the same person wrote this. Or, like, no, I can't tell you which one I wrote, but I didn't write it. Mm-hmm. It's so ballsy. That's the end of the interview. So then Bob asks if he can keep that photo of him and Susan. And the crew starts wrapping up. And they save a sandwich for Bob. And Bob goes to use the bathroom. Chicken salad. <laughs> I don't know. But they, you literally, like, you hear PAs being like, yeah, or, you know, one of the producers being like, can we get a, there's sandwiches, Bob, can we get a sandwich for Bob? And someone's, like, wrapping it up for him. And Bob goes to use the bathroom. While Bob uses the bathroom, his microphone continues to record. Mm-hmm. Or maybe this is the bathroom. Yeah, that's... You're all right. This is the bathroom. <laughs> There it is. Your cord. You're right, of course. But you can't imagine.
So that is the recording from Bob's hot mic at the end of the jinx. The transcript is... Thank you. Yeah. There it is. You're caught. You're right, of course. But you can't imagine. Arrest him. I don't know what's in the house. Oh, I want this. What a disaster. He was right. I was wrong. And the burping. I'm having difficulty with the question. What the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. Bob was arrested one day before the finale of The Jinx aired. (sighs) Many have taken this to be a a confession, but since the airing of the documentary and his 2015 arrest in connection with Susan Berman's murder, Durst has claimed that he was on meth for the duration of the filming. Oh, great. Okay. (laughs) There has also been a lot of debate over whether this audio would be admissible in court. Three years after his arrest, Robert Durst has been ordered to stand trial for the murder of Susan Berman after a judge ruled that there is enough evidence. However, his attorney has argued that there's a lack of physical evidence, such as DNA and fingerprints, to link him to the crime. Robert Durst has pleaded not guilty and has not been granted bail. Now, this is all from an article online. Mm. As Durst prepares to face a criminal trial on first-degree murder charges in a California court, his lawyers are attempting to cast doubt on the way the show presented its interviews. A transcript submitted by the defense team shows that Durst's infamous quote, What the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course, was actually pieced together, separated by six sentences of additional context. On the basis of the editing decisions surrounding the now-notorious bathroom audio, Durst's defense is reportedly seeking to ensure that none of the evidence compiled by the team behind the jinx can be deemed admissible in the upcoming proceedings. Have they come to a ruling about that? Uh, I will get to that in a second. Okay. Here's the actual transcript uh, without the editing. Oh, they have it? Mm -hmm. (gasps) I've never heard this. Well, there's not a recording. It's just... I know, I've never read it. Or had you read it to me. Unintelligible. I don't know what you expected to get. I don't know what's in the house. Oh, I want this. Killed them all, of course. I want to do something new. There's nothing new about that. What a disaster. He was right. I was wrong. The burping. I'm having difficulty with the question. What the hell did I do? Which, to me, is still pretty incriminating. I'm sorry. So what's the part that wasn't in the documentary? Basically, they cut together what the hell did I do and put killed them all after that. Okay. Sneaky. We put the line killed them all at the very end of the last episode to end the series on a dramatic note, not to link it to any other line, series editor Zach Stewart-Pontier told the New York Times. It didn't occur to us that other journalists would connect it with what the hell did I do. Why? There are actually 10 seconds between the two lines, and I think the experiences of reading it and hearing it are very different. So the editing team was like, we just switched the lines around. We weren't trying to, like, make it sound like he said, what did I do? I killed them all. We just wanted to end on that note. But honestly, what difference does it make? What? In- but also, what do you mean? Who, the editor? Yeah. We didn't mean for people to think that what he said was, what the hell did I do? I killed them all. We just made him say, what the hell did I do? <laughs> killed them all. Yeah, that's fair. You know? Like, I understand their motivation and they did a very good job and oh boy it's so impactful but also like mm. i mean when you're listening to it there's 10 seconds of audio between the line or 10 seconds yeah between the two lines so like 
to me, I don't, when I watch it and when I listen to it, I don't hear, what did I do? Killed them all, of course. It sounds like what he's saying is, what the hell did I do in response to, like, why did I do this interview? Yes. And then the separate line, I killed them all, is is separate, and that's the way he actually intended it. Yeah, well, you have to have different actor thoughts between the (laughs) lines. Which, I mean, yeah, but also, like, what do you, you know... Right. You're just going to release this to every person on the planet and like, or whoever subscribes to HBO and think that they're all going to get your very good editing techniques. Like, Are you saying that the Jinx paints an unfair... No, I'm saying they did a very good job editing, but you, they overestimated a bulk of their audience. That's fair. Um, the Jinx went on to win two Emmys and a Peabody Award. What did they win the Emmy in? I don't know. Sound editing? Probably. (laughs) In a setback for Durst's defense team, the judge also ruled that the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office can present evidence in the trial relating to the 2001 killing of a Texas neighbor, Morris Black, for which Durst was acquitted of murder. Oh, that's interesting. In September, a Los Angeles judge rejected an attempt by Robert's defense attorneys to strip the producers of protection under California's journalist shield law by having them declared government agents. In a motion, Durst's Durst defense team, led by Dick DeGaron, uh, the hero of the story, who he, he's still representing him. He's representing him in his 2020 trial, too. Oh argued that the filmmakers and the police consulted, coordinated, and collaborated so closely that they formed a <laughs> symbiotic relationship. Converting the filmmakers into government agents. Except for they didn't at all because the filmmakers very aggressively hid that note from From the the police. police. The producers not only gave the police and prosecutors multiple advanced screenings of their work, they even put together a PowerPoint presentation for them at prosecutor's suggestion about why Durst should be charged with Berman's death. I don't believe anyone did a PowerPoint presentation. The prosecution is not planning to seek the death penalty against Robert Durst, who is 76 years old and frail from cancer and other health problems. On October 28th of this year, as in like two weeks ago, a pretrial hearing was held in the case. You can watch it online if you Google it. And Chip Lewis, who also represented Durst in his 2003 trial, is the one speaking in the video you can find online of the pretrial hearing. Robert is there looking very frail. Is that when he has the neck brace? This was like a week ago. Oh, okay. I'm thinking of older picture. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I didn't, I, he, I don't think he was wearing one in the pretrial hearing. I didn't notice it if he was. Um, and Chip Lewis literally says at one point, Miriam Webster's defines journalists as. Stop it. In his attempt to make the argument that the filmmakers shouldn't be treated as journalists Is because the they edited, ever? because they edited their footage. Durst goes to trial in January of 2020 for the murder of Susan Berman. He will be represented by Dick DeGaron and Chip Lewis. And that is the end of our story for now. For now. For now. Until January fucking 2020. The end. I'm so glad. (laughs) We did it. We did it. I... It just make. (laughs) Did that convey how I felt? Yes. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Very clearly. I mean, it just confronts so many things that, like, I feel like reading, being so into true crime, I kind of, like, don't 
really experience anymore emotionally, but like this story really brings that me stuff have up. Yeah. real feelings like a normal human being. Right. I hate it. Yeah, it's really rough. I don't want to like confront my own humanity and like ask difficult questions and like I don't blame you. It's a huge bummer. It's such a bummer. I just want to be like, was the Mothman real? Like, <laughs> my mom told me that she listened to the Mothman episode. By the way, and Does she, she believe enjoyed in the Mothman? it. She didn't say whether or not she believes, but she did say she enjoyed the episode. Okay, I like that. I think she might believe. I think she might too. So, thank you for listening. Thank you for sticking with us through all of that. Um, please rate and review. And you can follow us on Instagram at Mystery Team Inc. Um, and you can send us an email at Mystery Team Incorporated at gmail.com. New shirts are coming, and we are very grateful to our listeners. And we will see you next week. Next week for some regularly scheduled non goblin Shovel King programming. Yay! Yay! Mm, what do we say? <laughs> Puckle the buck up. Stay in your lane. We don't know. Smooches. For the very last time. For the last time. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.